Hello, welcome to Talking Fit. I'm Paul Rose. I'm joined as ever by Luke Morgan. And today we are joined by Shakiba Mogadam. Shakiba, thank you for coming on. Uh, welcome to the show. Just in two or three minutes, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, cool. So I'll keep this short. Um, so I'm Shakiba Mogadam. Um, I am currently studying at the University of Portsmouth. I'm studying for my doctorate degree and I'm looking at mental health literacy in elite female rugby players. Um, alongside that, I also do a lot of lecturing at university. I'm also a research associate at um, the University of Portsmouth within the Institute of Criminal Justice in the cybercrime team. It's all very interesting. Um, studies aside, I also participate in a lot of sports. So at the moment, I'm, I'm focusing on long distance long to mid distance running so um last uh, this year in feb i attempted the 145k um slate trail in snowdonia and then ever since then i've been focusing on slightly shorter distances and just really trying to go out a bit more in the mountains i don't live near the mountains so we have to travel a little bit trying running and hiking um I also have a background in amateur boxing, so I've had, I think I've had 15 fights now, um, and they've been at quite an elite level, so it's been really interesting competing at that level. Um, and yeah, I, I've, I've participated in a lot of sports um, just to try and find what I really enjoy. Um, also have two Huskies, I have to get that in there. I've got two Siberian Huskies, and they absolutely love the outdoors, so we try and go out outside and as camping on the mountains as much as possible to give them the best quality of life. Um, also, I come, I'm originally from Tehran in Iran. So I, I was born there, I grew up there until the age of 10. And then we immigrated to Southampton in England. So we're about me there. Cool, um, quite a broad spectrum as well. Yes. <laughs> so, Mid to long distance running, um, 145k for most people is way beyond long distance. <laughs> what classifies, uh, kind of in your mind, as the mid distance? Um, I guess like between the 50s to the 80k's. Um, okay. I think when you're aiming to run 145k, 50k doesn't seem like anything. Um, which is crazy now that I think about it, having taken a step back from running at the moment, those kind of distances anyway, due to a knee injury. Um, but when you're kind of in that mindset of, okay, I'm, I'm training for 145k, I need to get, you know, roughly 80k in this week or 100k in. Yeah, it, it doesn't sound like much to do a 50k run. Um, so yeah, I, I'd say 50 to 80 is a, in my head about mid, mid distance, I guess. And I'm sure we'll get back to this later on, but how did you get to the position where you got so involved in these much bigger distance runs? Um, so I've always, I've always been a running fanatic, probably since 2013, where I started taking it a bit more seriously. And after doing a couple of races, probably just only 21Ks, and probably I think the max I ran at that point was 30K. And I thought, oh, this, you know, what if I go just try and go a little bit longer? What if I try and do a marathon? And funny enough, I didn't actually, I've never done a marathon. Um, so I met my partner who'd never ran ever in his life. He actually has like a condition when it comes to running. 
Um, so when he when he runs and he hasn't run before or hasn't take, has taken a long time out of running, he starts itching everywhere. Um, and I've never met anyone like that. So when we went out for our first run, he he refused to stop because he said it was our first run together. It'd be embarrassing if he stopped. But afterwards, he actually took his trousers off and started itching everywhere. And I was like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> and um, so through he started getting into running and he has he also has a very obsessive behavior in terms of when it comes to something he wants to really push it and so we kind of took a journey together in terms of exploring how far we can run um, we both found running on the road really boring so we we live quite close to the new forest so we went to the new forest and I've always been fascinated by mountains where I grew up in Tehran it's, it's surrounded by mountains and we started to explore the Brecon Beacons, going for runs there. And then eventually, out of the blue, Owen said he signed us up for a race. And I was like, oh, okay, so how far is this? Given that we've never run a marathon or anything. And he was like, oh, we're, right, um, we're running a 45K, um, technically an ultra. And I was like, okay, all right, we do this. That's all right. Um, and that was, I guess, our first experience of running that kind of distance within a race environment. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And I guess when it finished, I thought, you know what? I still got a lot of energy in the bank. I wouldn't mind, you know, if it pushed it to 50K. And it becomes a bit obsessive where you start, I guess, chasing these numbers. You know, what happens if I hit 50? What happens if I hit 60? Um, so we started training more and more. Um, I kind of took a little bit of a step back to focus on boxing again and then got back into running. And I think that the love for it comes way of exploring your own limits but also exploring your surroundings and the environment and the mountains um and it's always nice you know if you've got someone else there who's, in, who's as interested as you are um so if i wasn't racing my partner owen was racing we trained together or vice versa we enter races and i, I honestly think those kind of races at that, that distances really tested your relationship it's either a make or break and luckily it made us but when you're exhausted and it, you know you haven't slept for 40 hours and you're in the middle of nowhere in the dark and you might lose your sat-nav or you get stuck in the storm like we did in Feb, it really tests your personality, your relationship, but also, you know, how I guess that kind of fight or flight reaction you have as well, you know, what do you do when you're literally stuck into a mountain in a storm, which is what happened to us in Feb. Um, and I guess you do, you would just keep pushing and going and we were stuck on the mountain with two other people. And luckily we'd been in similar conditions before whereas they hadn't and we were helping them cross the rivers and stuff. And we were literally, I say running, we were walking very fast with the water up to our knees at one point. Um, so looking back at it, I really enjoy being in those kind of like extreme environments, but at the time it does go through my head, you know, what, what are you doing here? Why have you put yourself in this situation? You could be at home tucked up in bed right now, but it makes one more. It really does. It does become like an obsession, I guess, for me. Yeah, it sounds like you're probably a couple of years ahead of me and my kind of ultra journey. But yeah, I think you basically just said exactly how I would describe it if I could articulate it as well. I think there are two kinds of people when it comes to running. There are those who try to push themselves for times. So they'll go and do a 10K or something and say, right, I'm going to do a 10K, but I'm going to do it faster and just constantly focus on that. And then there are those who go, well, I'm just going to see if I can run a bit further. And I think the problem with being, as I am as well, one of the people who just always wants to go a little bit further is there's no limit to it. 
Like mm-hmm. if you're going for times, there's going to come a point where you just can't train yourself to run any faster. Whereas with distances, you could kind of become one of those people that runs across a country or across a continent. And you're a bit like, okay, maybe this could be a little bit, could be going down a slippery slope here. But yeah, it's like you say, I think the thing that really jumped out to me that you said there was exploring yourself and exploring your yeah. surroundings. And it's just a really, really good way to just get out into into the mountains or, or wherever it may be and just see these places that perhaps you wouldn't normally explore. Yeah. And particularly if you're doing it in a race setting as well, there are marshals around, there are first aiders around, there's there's loads of safety elements there. So it yeah. just gives you that, that support that you wouldn't have if you were to go and go trekking or something. Yeah, similar. absolutely. I think with, with those kind of races, as much as of individual sport running is, there is definitely a team cohesion you get from those kind of races. Um, everyone's like checking, you know, making sure you're okay. I remember for the race in Feb, which it, it was one of the worst races in terms of preparation. And we got there late because we were stuck in traffic. And of course, for an ultra, you need to be like super ready to go. Um, we'd, we'd both bought the running bags as well. And I had to fit it to fit me. And, and it just, the weather was horrific. Everything was just going wrong. And I remember when we started, there was one guy who was having a nightmare and his, everything was just falling out of his bag. And, us and another two people stopped and we were helping him. And I just think, you know, people are not, people are not, not, are not selfish in that community. They are genuinely there to help you. And he, um, I remember the year before when I did the same race, but I was um, pacing, I was a pacer, then there were people who were stopping in the race just to make sure that other people were okay. One person fell asleep on the mountains. And so someone had to stop and report them. And I think that's really nice. Like, and I guess running is, is such a is such a long spectrum in terms of, you know, the sh- distances you can cover. And in the shorter distances, it is about chasing time. And um, before I got into ultra, I, I was very much of a 5K, 10K runner, smash at this time on a distant amount of time. And your focus isn't on, oh, let me take a sermon so it's the case, about, you know, running as fast as you can. Um, and so not many people would stop, really, especially if you're quite competitive. Whereas with this, even if you're competitive, someone might just stop just to be like, do you want a bit of, you know, do you want a salt tablet or do you want something to get you um, going? Do you want some water? And I think that's, that's such a nice feeling to have in the community and the running community really does provide that. And I, I really like that about the sport. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. Yeah, I, I had my first experience where people would openly help me um, so I did an event with Paul probably about, was it four years ago, Europe's Toughest Mother? Uh, Five years ago? 2017, three years ago. Oh, three years ago, cool. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, it's, everybody probably knows Tough Mother now, but Europe's Toughest Mother, you start at midnight and you finish at eight in the morning. I think it was a five mile loop and there's as many loops as you could do in the eight hours. And I did it. And it got to about 7.15 in the morning. I was on my last lap. And I felt like I was, I was fine, but obviously I didn't look fine at all. Every single person that came past me was handing me their food. Every oh. single person. And I thought the finish line was like a few minutes away. They were like, there's only 45 minutes to go, mate. You can finish a lap. And I, was, I said to one guy, like, 45 minutes, got ages. Like, I'm absolutely fine. But I was, I was obviously in a bad way. Paul saw me afterwards, <laughs> shivering in my little blanket. Oh, no. Yeah, I was, I was in quite a bad way. But um, every single person. 
every single person who came past handed me a little bit of food. And uh, at the end, they will come up to you and see how you are. You, I don't think you really get that in, in time-based racing. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think with, 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 with time-based racing, maybe at the end, you know, you shake hands and you'll be like, well done, and everyone goes their separate ways. But with this community, it's, it's very different. Um, people stick around. You know, we've, we've made like quite a few friends who are like, you know, if you go to the mountains, give us a shout and we'll come and meet you. And I think, you know, we've just met in... We've met just at a race, but I think the conditions that you actually make friends in are really testing conditions and people really show their true colours. For example, a, a woman on a woman and a man that we met at, on the slate trail this year in Feb, having just met them there and then, um, I've kept in touch with both of them and I've said to the to the woman, uh, you know, if I ever come up to Wales, I'll give you a shout. And it was because we were stuck in, in the storm together on the top of the mountains. And I think that's such an extreme condition to be stuck with someone. And they really showed their true colour and their true colours were so nice to experience because they were so friendly and warm that even in that kind of situation, it was nice to be with, with other people like that. And I just think with, other, with certain other sports, you don't really, you don't have the opportunity to, to experience those kind of conditions with other, I guess, with strangers. Because there were other people within the race where they were navigating and they were getting a bit annoyed you know, they were getting lost and we could hear them like shouting a little bit. And I, I understand because you get to a certain point in a race and you think, oh my God, I've been going along like the wrong way for the last 5k and they get a bit frustrated and I understand that. But other people have different coping strategies. And so I guess when I say true colours is how people cope in those kind of situations. Some people panic, other people are calm. And it was for me, because I've been in similar situations and I guess in my head I was like, it could be worse than this, you know. We could be completely lost. We could have no sat nav. Um, I had a, I had some sort of hope because our sat nav was working, so we were fine. <laughs> Whereas for others, it you know they had they didn't didn't have that option. So I was always hopeful. Do you think with your sports psychology kind of background, you you look for things in people a little bit more in in that kind of respect, like you're yeah kind of looking at how people are reacting and thinking kind of dissecting it a little bit more than say you do all right yeah the grind they do yeah absolutely and um it's not, a, not it's not coming from a place of being judgmental but it's from a place of being observant it's more so if i see someone who's panicking i want to help rather than be like um, you know what are you doing i wouldn't do that I, I, if i could see someone panicking i, I would try my best to reassure them because from a sports psychologist background, that is, that is, I guess, ultimately what you do is you try and reassure people and help them develop the skills they need to cope in certain in certain situations that they would panic. And so, yeah, I would definitely, and it's weird, it's almost become a norm for me to dissect people, like you said, you know, from the get-go of meeting them. And it's not, for me, it's not a bad thing because I've become a good judge of character, but I guess I don't really make it obvious either, you know, when I, when I meet someone, but... It, in a sporting environment it is so interesting to meet the diverse set of athletes you get the very serious ones at the beginning that won't smile and will just you know head down run you get the ones that are very chatty and maybe a little bit too chatty and want to know everything about your life and then you got the ones you know who would just be like hi you're right and then they'll just run in silence and there's no awkward silence you know there's an understanding that we're going to focus on our breathing and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll be in each other's company because it's actually quite nice. So yeah, for me, it's, it's so interesting to kind of observe other people and also 
just see where I can slot in and help if, if, if there is anywhere that I could help. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is probably natural, no matter what your, your kind of line of expertise is that you see that more in, in the world around you. Like if I'm going to the gym or something and I see someone about to break their back with kettlebell swings, my natural instinct is to say, just hold back a minute and coach them yeah. through it a little bit more. So yeah, it, it completely makes sense that when your your expertise is sports psychology, you're going to focus more on the psychology of, of the people around you. Do you think as well that it helps you understand yourself and what you're going through a bit more? Or do you find that that kind of goes out the window a little bit when you're in those kind of, maybe if you're in a bad, bad patch in a race? Yeah, no, I think in terms of understanding myself in and outside of a sporting environment, it, psychology has definitely helped, especially in, in a sporting environment where I find myself a lot. It, I question my resilience a lot. You know, I, I, I question resilience versus stubbornness because I am very stubborn. And I do think, you know, are you... Because for me, resilience is really important. And I'm, I think, I guess for me, quitting is just isn't in me. But... I'm, I'm still trying to establish a line where I guess where people have said enough is enough, but in terms of when it comes to health, especially physical health. And for me, I am still trying to walk this very tight rope of understanding the difference between resilience and then being stupidly stubborn. Um, and for me, I, I try and evaluate others around me, especially my partner, because I know him as a person and I know how resilient he really is as a person. But, you know, he's got limits where in terms of if your knee is literally about to fall off, he will stop. But I think it's good to take those steps to avoid your knee falling off. If you can feel certain pain coming up that is actually out of your control and it's only getting worse. It's knowing that this hasn't, this hasn't got anything to do with resilience now. This is actually your physical health coming into question. And if you push it anymore, you probably actually end up hurting, hurting yourself so much that you have to be out of the game for a lot longer. So what's the point in that? Because actually you won't be able to test your resilience in that way. And so for me, it's really interesting to observe myself because I know there are, I guess, corruptions in my mentality in terms of resilience. My motivation has always been there, even if it's lacking. For me, I will just get up and do it because I know the outcome at the end will always be good. I always feel great after exercising that's not necessarily for everyone and I, I'm very mindful of that not everyone has that mentality towards physical activity and all sport but for me personally even if I'm not motiva motivated I will just go and do it because I know actually afterwards I feel so great and that great great feeling at the end is far more important than you know an extra five minutes in bed I guess and it's not the same and that's okay not to be like that because some people you know I've had people say oh, how, how do you get up at half five in the morning and get, get, get to the gym or go for a run? And because this works for me, but I'm not saying it, you know, everyone has to have that approach. And that's fine if you don't have that approach. It doesn't make you less of a person or anything. That's just what works for me. And it's important that everyone has their own individual strategies that makes them feel good. Mine is just genuinely doing that and pushing my limits, I guess. I enjoy that. Yeah, I think it's something you like what you're touching on there there's something that you learn more just through experience i think when all of us when we're a bit younger particularly in a maybe more of a for me in a, a coaching sense 
you think, well, I've got this mindset towards things, or I've got this approach towards things, this is how my brain works. I need to just get other people working like that, and then everything will fall into place for them and they'll be able to do it all. But it doesn't work like that. Like as you start to learn more about people, you realize that actually trying to turn them into a copy of you is never gonna achieve anything. You need to find what works for them and teach them how to draw the best out of themselves mm -hmm. um, so like you say for probably for most people getting up at half five in the morning isn't going to do it if someone says oh you know what I, I prefer going to the gym in the evening trying to get them to do it at six o'clock in the morning probably isn't yeah happen you just exactly. need to find the way to to keep them doing it and getting the most out of it in the evening and yeah vice versa in different yeah absolutely i agree and i'm um... At the end of the day, we are all humans and our, our behaviours and strategies are very different. And that's what makes us human is that we're not all the same. We're not robots. We are all very different. And so it's, it's, it's being accepting of everyone's ways of, of living and ways of doing things because not everyone's way is going to be the same. And I, I fully encourage that. I think everyone should, everything, for me, I guess, coming from a place of profession as well, I try and individualize things so much that if, if that's if I'm coming from a sports psychology background, I'm trying to help someone within a certain domain, individualize it to that individual. If I'm coming from a coaching background, so I completely forgot to say also myself and my partner um, we own a, a training facility in Southampton called Move Training Center. And we are about calisthenics, so using your own body weight to exercise. But we also um, do train with athletes and all members of, it, of the community. And even from in, in a coaching perspective, both of our perspectives and approach is very individualized to each individual. You know, from looking at how you want to train, when you want to train, and what suits your body specifically, instead of actually being like, cause, and I'm sure you can agree with this, a lot of coaches and or personal trainers some, some of them, and this is coming from, I guess, a place of experience with me in terms of exchanging words with, with certain people within commercial gyms, they use the same protocol for, for all of their clients. And when it doesn't work, they question why it's not working. And it's actually, you need to look at the strategies that you're using for, for your clients because everyone's bodies work different. And it's, it's, it's literally ripping that apart and thinking, actually, no, every person you need to start with you need to have a individualized tailored program for them and that's that's the way they will achieve whatever it is they want to achieve and progress and progression for me as a coach and as a business owner is really important for my clients and members because without progression then what's where is the motivation for them to keep coming back and so that's how we work is making sure there's some sort of progression whether that's behavioral physical or technical skill wise there's so many ways you can progress as long as there's some sort of progression in some sort of way and the, your goals are timely and you know the, your self expectations are in line not only with ours but it's reasonable and actually achievable rather than thinking i'm going to strip five percent body fat in four days because you know some people want that but it's not actually achievable given certain circumstances and how our bodies work so that's what we are, are, are all about and i find within the fitness industry there, there is a lot of, I guess, false promotion of certain things working. And, you know, you get a lot of things go around like, oh, this is the new way to get a flat belly. And this is the way where you get, and I'm like, no, like, 
no, that's not, that's not how it works. You know, promotion, you know, the, the language that's used, it's, it sounds great, but when it comes down to the reality of it, that's not how it works. And I, my partner's been in industry for about 12 years now, and he's, he's worked under some very well-respected coaches. And when I listen to him, and then, you know, I see, I see Joe Bloggs, who's just got his PT qualification, maybe from an online course or whatever, who is just got into it, and they're starting to promote, you know, you're going to, you know, come and train with me, you're going to lose body fat in five days. And I think don't, I don't like false advertisement and drawing people in, uh, you know, because of the insecurities of their bodies. And I don't, I don't really, I really don't like that approach in, in the fitness industry. But unfortunately, there's a lot of that at the moment going on. And I guess I lose respect for people when I see that massively, rather than being honest and open about how you're going to approach training someone. I think for a lot of uh, companies, not just in the fitness industry, but throughout all industries, they there is a fine line between marketing and getting somebody's attention and the actual product that you're trying to sell. And that fine line, they it often gets overstepped where they just go on the, this will get somebody's attention. They don't think about delivering the suggested benefits or the promises that they are advertising. And anybody who does it, I don't really think it works from long term. For some people, it might make some short term financial benefits. But yeah, I think that is across all industries, but particularly now where everybody is just launched online if they haven't already been online for a long time and they're doing anything they possibly can to get ahead of their competition. When you're area based, you've very you've got competition, obviously. But when you're online based, you're against everybody in the same industry. And I think people just don't think about who they are and they just they just lose all all pride and respect and they just go, I need money, let's yeah. advertise this, five please, here's some pills, here's some a load of stuff to take. But going back to what you were saying previous to that, with the online courses, I don't even think it's just the online courses. I think it's majority of training courses. Obviously there's exceptions, but the majority of training courses, they are taught with if you do this, 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 and this, you will get the results that you want. And it's only when the experience comes into it or the additional uh, modules that you'll learn that you actually understand that everybody's individual. Mm-hmm. And I think that's only through talking to people and maybe life experiences as well, perhaps as a psychological approach in the course. But even those on your general personal training course aren't enough yeah. to enable you to understand yeah, I always compare personal training courses to to learning to drive. Like you, you learn enough to get you through the test and kind of get your go out and start doing it. You don't actually learn anything about driving or personal training until you start doing it and you start actually working with people and you realise that real people are very different to the kind of people you're in a classroom with pretending to be someone else for the sake of a case study or and of course the other thing is when you do the courses you basically learn that the only progressions people can make in fitness are lift more weight or do more reps with a weight and when you're actually there in front of a person maybe not particularly in fitness but certainly in fitness there are so many more progressions they can make to that someone may not get stronger but you could see their confidence skyrocket. And if that happens, then they've made progress and they've got some benefits from the training they're doing. 
the majority of people, as we've said before, Luke, come to a personal trainer, they're not looking to get absolutely ripped. Even if they, they may say they are, they may think they are, but when they realize what actually goes into looking like a cover model, that's not actually what they want. They just want to look a bit better naked, feel a bit better about themselves, be a bit more comfortable in the clothes they're wearing and still be able to go out for dinner and have a few drinks on a Friday night. Mm, absolutely. And I think, again, when you sell that image, you got to think, you really got to consider sustainability and how sustainable is it to be 5% body fat? And then obviously in terms of genders, it's going to differ massively for women in comparison to men, because of course women need certain types of fat around their organs to be able to function better, especially if you have a menstrual cycle. And so it's everything like those, those things that need to get taken into account that currently doesn't in, in the fitness industry. And that, for me, that's a massive corruption that has only been progressing as the years has gone on, especially with social media, you know, is advancing massively. Yeah. Part of the problem for me. Yeah, I think, um, and again, Luke and I have spoken about this in previous podcasts, the, the big issue or one of the big issues with social media is anyone now who's in good shape can go and sell online programs or online personal training or something and their approach will be if you can't fit into the way i want to train people then you're wrong there's no adaptability uh, in what they're offering to suit the different kinds of people that they're working with and no coach or personal trainer is going to be able to get amazing results with every single person there's always going to be some kind of incompatibilities with with some people and i think that from a, a personal training point of view you generally in the longer term you tend to attract people with a similar kind of personality and mm -hmm. mindset and approach to you yeah um, like i don't get clients coming to me who want to do bodybuilding shows or want to be powerlifters because that's not what I do they don't look at me and see that person they see someone who likes to have a bit of fun throw some weights around have a couple of drinks at the weekend and go and run a lot and so they're generally the kind of people that I get yeah um, yeah as Shardy yeah. said in our previous episode you are the company you keep yeah yeah absolutely that's it that's that's, that's very true and um I think other people also see what kind of people you draw in and you know, people want to feel fit. They want to feel like they fit in somewhere. And that's really important to offer with, with our, I don't call it a gym on purpose, just because I know a lot of people get put off by the word gym. And so I call it a training facility. With our training facility, we'll make sure that there is, again, that, that cohesion is really important. I keep using that word, but because it's, it's such an important thing to have within an environment where you are promoting physical activity and sport. And it's to make sure everyone feels like they belong there and that there are friendly faces. And that is something, again, that some sporting clubs lack. And that is something that a lot of commercial gyms I work with, I work a lot in the community. I work with women over the age of 50 and I help them tackle health issues through physical activity. And one of the biggest things I've, I've, I've heard through these women is that when they step into a commercial gym, they don't feel like they fit in. When they work with a, PT, with a PT in a commercial gym, and this isn't me stereotyping every, every commercial gym, of course, 
but this is just a narrative that's been presented to me so far. Um, you know, people tell them, they'll just sit them on a bike for an hour and they'll be like, you know, just, just, you know, go on the bike. Whereas there's so much you can do with someone. So one of the clients I work with, um, she has like, quite extreme arthritis in both her knees, her joints and her arm. She can't lift one arm up at all. She was quite severely overweight. She, we, together, she's lost 23 kilograms in about 11 months now. So it's been sustainable. She's done amazing and she's 60. Um, and her goal is to be able to get the operation she needs for her arthritis. And so this, we've done, you know, we've done from boxing to calisthenics to, oh, to strong woman training. You know, there's protocols that you can take from so many different things. But like you said, it comes from a place of experience and the knowledge that you gain from the people that you surround yourself with. And that is what the fitness industry lacks, is experience. And it's not about appearance. Um, on my social media, you, you won't, you would rarely ever see me with, you know, I guess I'm not one to be like, look at me. If you, if you look at me, you're gonna, um, this is how I'm gonna draw my clients in by, by looking at me. I, and I'm not saying that's the wrong way to do it because for some people that works and fine, that's, you know, that's cool if you wanna do that. But for my approach isn't that, it's not, I see that as a quite a self-centered approach. That's not my approach. I like to base everything on on my clients if I'm working with them. And so that's my approach. And uh, again, I'm not saying my approach is right or wrong, but it is my approach and for me it has worked. Um, I've gained a lot of clients in a short amount of time. When I wanna have a big client base and it's what's made, I guess, our facility run successfully for the last five years now. And so I think yeah, there's different approaches within the fitness industry. Some are very questionable, others work perfectly and are very sustainable. I think what personal trainers and coaches need to realise long term is that it's your job to adapt to the client, not the client's job to adapt to how you want to train them and how you want them to be. Absolutely. If, if you want them to do that, then you may as well just direct them to some cookie cutter yeah program they can buy online for a tenner yeah you've got to be you've got to be able to and you know you're not going to do it in one or two sessions it's going to be a longer term process but you've got to start to understand or try to understand the kind of person that they are how they tick and what and, and there's going to be some trial and error in there finding the kind of the style that works for them yeah term. and i think within within that kind of fitness industry and sport there is, there is this misconception that there's only a certain type of population that could be, you know, within, within gyms and within sports. And it's actually, you know, sport and physical activity, it is so inclusive. You can literally be of any shape, any age, any gender, any color, any size, and you can take part in sport, physical activity. Sport is one of the, the and physical activity is one of the biggest inclusive concepts we can have on this earth you know and so there is this misconception that you have to be a certain you have to look a certain part to be in those kind of environments and i guess as a two-man team two-woman man team we do try and remove that stigma stigma that comes and hence why we rebranded our, our gym to a training facility because firstly we were getting a lot of bodybuilders knocking on our door and we're not a bodybuilding gym and Secondly, people were being put off by coming because of the word gym. And it's making those small adjustments that actually 
could change a lot. It can change your flow of income. It could change the way you're perceived as a business. But actually, it, it could also involve more of the community in what you're doing. And if that is your purpose, then those kind of things need to get taken into account. And like you said, it's, it's, it is everything is about trial, trial and error. And it's removing those kind of misconceptions within the environment that you're working with and trying to be, or at least for us, our goal is to be as inclusive as, as possible. Everyone deserves to be physically active. We are all, we are all within our bodies, you know, whether you are disabled or abled, you're still, in some way, you can still be active. I think inclusivity leads us on quite nicely to boxing, just because I think historically, I think it's changed, changing quite fast, certainly over the last few years, but historically boxing has been this kind of niche bubble is only for a certain type of person, normally men. And we said we were talking on a previous podcast to another female boxer and we talked about the impact of Nicola Adams and how that has changed a lot in a short space of time. So how, how did you get into boxing, first of all? Yep. So for me, I got into it when I was in my second year of uni and I was looking at just a sport that, was completely new to me again I, at that point I was my first year of uni I was in a wakeboarding society I was wakeboarding for a long time within that year and I enjoyed it but unfortunately when it got to wakeboarding in the winter I'm not good with the cold at all like I my body absolutely shuts down in the cold um, so my hands were getting numb when I was wakeboarding and so I couldn't grip onto the onto what you have to hold to handle when you're when you're wakeboarding and so I thought, you know, I'll try something else, maybe a little bit less cold. And I actually ended up getting mumps during that year. So for me, I was like, I'm going to try something else that I'm not exposed to the cold so much. So I went along to Gym I One in Portsmouth, um, probably one of the best things I could have done. Um, I went there for kickboxing, actually, and it was great. I, I enjoyed kickboxing, but there was an element of you couldn't go too hard in sparring. And a couple of times I was you know, told off a little bit by kicking someone a bit too hard. And at the same time, I didn't want to hurt anyone. So, and I always used to stay after kickboxing and watch the boxing. And the coach at the time was an ex-military um, person and he was very militant and very disciplined. And I really enjoyed that. And so I nervously went up to him after one of the sessions and said, can I join in with that next time? And it was like, yeah, sure, but make sure you, you bring, you know, bring your A game. And I was like, okay, yeah, I will. And for about a solid two months, I, I wasn't, I'd go to his session, I wouldn't say a word. But what I liked about it was that he didn't treat you any differently because, you know, because I was a girl. He treated me the same. He shouted, shouted at me at the same rate, same volume as he was shouted at the boys. He'd put me in sparring with the guys. He just didn't see the whole female and male thing, you know, of course there was, um, it put restrictions into place so that people wouldn't get hurt, but it wasn't based on your, your gender, you know, all of that went out the window. And I really liked the aspect of it. And I found myself when I, when I was in that kind of environment in boxing, I, I actually stopped drinking in my second year of, of uni for about four years. Um, and for me, I think that was a, a massive personal growth being able to stop drinking um, not that I had any problems with drinking, but I think with with the student type of life, sometimes drinking becomes a norm. And I did realise in my first year, I was going out, you know, four, up to four times a week and a lot of money was spent on drinks. And I thought, you know, 
I'd, I'd, that's not me. Like, that's not the way I, I'd want to pursue a future. And so within boxing, it naturally came that a lot of people didn't actually drink because they were keeping in shape. Some of them did, they just drank a little bit, but it wasn't like the content of drinking four times a week. And so I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And it was nice. I ended up making, you know, a lot of my friends are from a boxing background now. And I love the environment. And again, it's one of those sports that it is an individual sport, but there's that massive team cohesion of everything you go through is with your team. Your team, you know, your team is very supportive. And I, Gym I won when I joined them, it, they were so welcoming. And if, if anyone goes there in Portsmouth, there's such an open, welcoming, inclusive gym. And for me, that was a great experience because I know not every gym is like that. And I know that now because of my experience with going to certain gyms and feeling alienated as a, as a woman, especially as a, as a woman who is not white and has comes from a very different background. Um, I, I've experienced some weird stuff in certain gyms. And so for me, and I still go, even though I live, I don't live there anymore. I do actually take the trip to go up there because I enjoy the atmosphere that much. That it's worth the trip. So for me, I loved everything that came with boxing. I loved the challenge. You know, you, you, if you really push yourself, not only physically, but emotionally and psychologically as well. Um, and I learned a lot, so much about myself in, 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 in the realm of boxing. And I loved it. So boxing, you don't like the cold. Why? did you think that you expose yourself to something else we wanted to be talking about? I can see a number 13 on your bookshelf. Yes, number 13. Yeah. What brought you to the decision that you wanted to push yourself to go on to SAS? Who does win? One thing about that was that I applied the year before and I got to the last 30 and then two days before flying out, I got a phone call from the produ- one of the producers saying, sorry, we've had to drop you out of the final, li- final list. And so I always had this little grudge in the back of my head, like, oh, I really want to go on it and I really want to experience this. Because um, in 2018, they, it was the first time they let females apply. And that was a reflection of opening up the special forces for females. So it was an actual legitimate thing that went on in the real world as well. And I really liked that. And for me, it would have been an achievement to have gone on it, but it, it was, I wasn't successful. And, and, and I'm a massive believer of everything happens for a reason. And that really did happen for a reason. And last year, I would say, was probably one of the most toughest and most horrific years of my life in terms of everything that could go wrong. And so I think I needed, I needed to test myself because I was going through a lot of, I guess, mental health issues and I wasn't understanding why they were happening. And my strategy was to put myself in a place where I know I'm going to be so uncomfortable that I will get pushed to breaking point, but I didn't know what my reaction to that breaking point would be. And so I wanted to test it. I wanted to find out. I was so curious because in, I guess in our everyday life, or at least in my everyday life, I'm not able to push myself to those limits because I'm just not in those kind of environments. I didn't get chucked out in, in cold Scottish below freezing waters and get told to run 5k up a mountain, you know, with our Middleton behind you shouting. So those conditions I knew was going to push me in. And funnily enough, I just, you know, when, when you went through the interview process and the more they, they, they shortlisted you, the concept of water kept coming up. How do you feel in water? You know, how do you feel about swimming? And I was like, yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right swimmer. I'm, I'm nothing, you know, perfect. I'm not magnificent at swimming. I can float. I can swim. 
you know for me that's enough I've, I've, I've never really focused on my swimming apart from just trying my hands at a sprint triathlon but apart from that I'm, I'm all right you know I can survive in water but by no means am I amazing at, a, at an amazing level when they asked me about the, when they asked me what's one of your you know what's one of your worst scenarios what would you hate the first thing I said was in the cold I hate to be in the cold I hate I just I hate being cold there's, there's no worse feeling for me I don't come from a I don't come from a cold country. I was born in Iran, and uh, to be fair, though our, our winters are freezing, but we get snow, so there was a fun element with it. So every winter we had snow, we had fun in the snow. Um, the rain was amazing, but it was just different. It wasn't always cold. The summers were hot, very hot, um, and so the majority of the year for me, well, I spend my childhood in, in the heat or in the snow. So for me, you know being cold and I guess the British weather wasn't a normal thing and it is something I'll probably never ever get used to no matter how old I am and how much time I spend in this country um and so I said to them you know I hate I hate being cold I can't deal with the cold and I guess that was one of my tickets into getting shortlisted to go on because everything for me is centered around I don't like being in water I don't like the feeling of my limbs shutting down on me and being in water I don't like being underwater I've, I've, I've had experience with slightly drowning when I was surfing at a younger age and my board trapped me under. And so I was trying to push the board up. Like, of course I couldn't because there was waves coming up. And um, yeah, so I had a really horrible experience with almost drowning. And so I, I was just never a fan of it. But I had two weeks to prepare basically. They told me with two weeks, to, they had two weeks to go and I had the phone call to say, you know, you're on, get training. And I thought, well, Luckily enough, where I was training for the national championships in boxing, actually. So in October, I was supposed to be fighting for um, the, the national championships. And so I was actually training really hard. I was sparring. I was running a lot. Um, but of course, I wasn't swimming. And I just got told, get into your nearest lake or sea and get swimming. Um, you, need to, you need to get used to swimming. And I thought, well, I've only got two weeks and I'm not going to risk my immune system running low. Because if I expose to my, myself to those kind of surroundings, I know my immune system will just crash all of a sudden and I'll just get ill. So I actually didn't do any swimming in the sea at all. Um, I ended up just hitting the, my local swimming pool and doing an hour length, you know, back and forth, back and forth, really boring. Just hope for the best in my head. But what I did do a lot of was mental preparation. For me, that was the key to be able to just keep grinding it out. I was having a lot of cold showers. So my sister, she's a pro at cold showers. I've got a twin sister and like she, she's been doing yoga for the last six years now. And so her breathing is on point. And so she was actually, she would come into the shower with me and just sit and I'd draw the curtain and I'd go in the shower and she's like, put the cold on now. And I put it on and she could just hear me breathing and screaming. But eventually she worked with me for a good two solid weeks just before I went on. And by the last day I took this cold shower, I was just silent. You just wouldn't know the cold water was on. And we, I think I maxed out about five minutes on the cold shower, um, which was horrific. But I think once you have your breathing under control, that's, that's the massive game changer for me. You, 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 you enable your mind to not feel the coldness as much because you can just, for me, I just zoned out. I was, I was, I was enabling myself to just zone out from the pain. Um, I had cold showers, cold baths as well, so ice baths, and that was, again, really horrific. But, again, it was a great shock to the system. 
and then I just started running in my boots and to enable my feet to you know get used to the boots and enable my feet to almost mold into the boots um, I was wearing the boots inside of the house you know as much as I could just to get them you know molded to my feet one thing I was very lucky with was that my feet and one thing that happened a lot for the people that were on there um, was that the feet, the, the, the toenails started falling off, um, the feet were getting athlete's foot, all this disgusting stuff. My feet has been through that for the last three years because of all the ultra running in the mountains. So my toenails have fallen off three times now. Really disgusting. <laughs> so it didn't actually happen when I was there because both of my toenails were actually, I didn't actually have toenails when I went on the show because they'd already fallen off. So <laughs> who knew that gave me an advantage? Um, my feet were peeling, but again, it wasn't anything abnormal that they they were always peeling because of running and the way I exposed them to the conditions that, I, that you get with ultra running. And so I was really lucky with that. And a lot of the people on, on the, on the course I was with, they, their feet were disgusting. I mean, it was peeling everywhere. People's feet were bleeding, peeling, toenails were falling left, right and center. And um, I just, yeah, I, I thought it was, you know, that's one good thing with me. You know, my feet are so conditioned to those environments. I didn't have that problem, but I wasn't conditioned for the cold whatsoever. Um, I, that's the one thing I really struggled with, but I need, it was going to test me. And ultimately that's why I done it. I was, I, I needed to get tested. And I guess for me, it was my, my way of coping with the mental health issues that I was experiencing at the time. And I'm not saying that's the right way to do it, you know, but for me, it was what worked at the time, and, and, and it did work, and it put me in a, an amazing place when I came back. I went back and watched the series once Luke said you were going to come on, and come on. you didn't really feature for most of it. They'd kind of, you'd pop up occasionally, or you'd hear, oh, well done, 13. When you did feature in those kind of little snippets, it always seemed to be that you were doing well with things. And then when they actually focused on you, it was... Shakiba really struggles with the cold water. She, you know, she's she's borderline hypothermia. Oh, we're not sure she's mentally tough enough. And it all suddenly seemed to be negative things when, as I say, all the little snippets before seemed to be that you were going through no problems at all. Obviously, they're taking you're there for what about a week, 10 days? Um, it was 12 days in the end. Okay. Yeah. And they're condensing that into six episodes of, kind of yeah. five minutes ish. So how would you say what we see on telly compares to the real experience that you go through when you're there? I think what you see in telly is 3% of what goes on in reality. It's not a representation of what really happens. Um, for me, one of the things I really struggled with was my exit. So everyone asks me, what was the hardest part for you when they say yes, who does wins? And for me, it was my exit because it was completely out of my control. There was a lot of problems with the exit behind the scene. Um, it wasn't done ethically, basically. Um, there was a lot of emotional trauma that actually caused in the end of which Foxy actually helped me a lot afterwards. And I, I always thank him for that. Um, he sat down with me for ages and you do see a snippet of it um, at the end where I've sat down with him, but that went on for maybe a good 45 minutes. I couldn't, I stopped. I, I, I guess for me, I, I wasn't, I wasn't able to accept that I'd been taken off without my, without my choice. Um, I think I would, I would do the whole thing again 
all of it. I'd, I'd love to do it in a heartbeat. If someone said, go and do it tomorrow, I'd say, yeah. But I wouldn't do the TV side. I didn't like the, the I didn't like what comes with TV. I, and obviously, I, where I hadn't had that kind of experience with TV, I wasn't, I didn't prepare myself for what was to come. And so everything is out of your hands. Everything is with, with the producers and how they want to draw you and your character and, you know, the narrative they want to have for you is, is already, they, they already have that, you know, from interviews when you first go in there. I think nobody expected me to, to stay there for as long as I did. Even Ant said in my interview in the mirror room, he said, we thought you'd be gone on the second day, which, which I found quite funny because I was like, oh, well, I was stuck there to, to, you know, second to last day practically. And um, so I didn't think that actually, uh, they just wanted me there to be there for numbers rather than, you know, to get to the end. And so I didn't like the fact that certain things were already the decisions were already made and I yeah I didn't like those those kind of things and how li little I was shown at the beginning and I think that on its own caused a lot of problem for other people because there were individuals who actually exited without them actually the, the exit wasn't that was never shown um there's people on there that when they say I was an SAS here there's wins people are like oh well where were you I didn't know you were on there but it's because you know their stories weren't focused on the narratives that were used where were mostly negative um, and I, I didn't like how it was set up I, I, I enjoyed the experience of everything that happened but what you see on TV is literally 3% of what went on it didn't show so every we, we could never have a straightforward night's sleep um, every night we'd get woken up probably about three or four in the morning go out for an hour and it was always raining always you were just never dry um, you, you go out in the freezing cold for an hour, you, you get some sort of beasting and you go back in and before you know it, you have to get back up at five, half five, six in the morning. And those little things, the lack of sleep, the lack of food, the lack of just, just being able to sit down for one second without worrying what the hell is about to happen next. Like you were always on the edge. You were always in that survival mode. You, you weren't able just to shut down. And some people, some like the amount of people that have messaged me like, oh, is it really that hard? You know, and I'm like, what kind of question is that? Like, it's, it's, it's imagine the hardest thing you can do and then times that by 10. It is horrifically like hard and they have like, the, the DSs have no remorse, which is what I liked about it. They don't care who you are. They don't care if you're a man or a woman. And I, again, that was an aspect I've really enjoyed. They don't care. They'll give you the same weight. Like I was the smallest one there and I had to carry the same weight as, a, as one of the 80 kg guys. They don't care. They don't care how, who you are. What that was one thing they did show from you earlier on, actually, was when everyone was being beasted outside and they had you all holding barrels above your head. And they did say number 13 is the only one who's held the barrel above him, above the head. Um, yeah. And then they let you go in early. But that was other than the odd shot where you might see you smiling in the corner. There wasn't much focus on you at all until, no. as I said, until it got to the point where they wanted to show that you were struggling. Yeah, you kind of it was almost from a viewing perspective, it seemed as if they were trying to portray you as weak, but then you couldn't have made it that far if you were weak. Yeah, no, absolutely. There were two guys got kicked out before it even started, in which I don't remember seeing any any other series of it previously. Yeah, that was that was the first. <laughs> that was the first. And yeah, you, you kind of feel like they've, they've probably got a couple of people in there that, as you say, they've put in to make up the numbers so that they can have something dramatic like 
like kicked them out before it's started. They've probably got their names down already as keep an eye on these ones early on because they're probably not going to cut the mustard and just yeah. make a show out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't like that at all. I just think at the end of the day, it's people's emotions you're dealing with and you, you can't do that, but it's TV and that is what happens in TV and that's production. But for me, one bit that was absolutely gutted they didn't show it was the the rugby murder. I can't remember what it's called, but it was where they, they throw the tyre up and you have to tackle each other. And one thing that Anne did, which I, which I loved, was that he put the smallest people against the biggest people. And he put me against number one, so James, who actually ended up winning it. And me and him went up against, and if you can remember, he was, he was a big lad. And... He threw the tire up and he said number 13 and number one. And I just legged it in the middle of the sand. And James got to the James was going for the tire. And I thought, I'm not going to go for the tire. I'm going to go for James. So he ran towards the tire and I ran for him. My strategy wasn't to get to the tire because he was close to it already. So I ran for him. And I've done a little bit of jiu-jitsu. So I was like, I know how to, you know, I can move my way around someone just about. And I before I was doing, I, th I think maybe for him, he was expecting me to tackle him or cling onto his leg. I just went straight for, so you, you in, in jiu-jitsu, you can jump on someone, wrap your legs around them. Um, and I got him and I got him into a choke, basically. I held his head in my chest and I pulled really tight. And so he couldn't see where he was actually going at that point. And for me, I was like, that's brilliant because he went, he went nowhere he was going. And in the midst of things, I guess it just kicked in that I can judo flip him. And so I put my feet to the ground and I managed to somehow judo flip this like 90 kilogram guy onto the floor. The tire fell out of his hand and I ran with it. And this at this point, Jay, Jay who was the mole, who actually ends up being one of the DS, was in my team. And he was like, oh my God, Shaq, what, how? How did you even do that? I was like, I don't know, but I've got the tire. And I, I remember the adrenaline wore off. I see James' head in the sand, like just dusting sand off his face. I look over to Anne and Ollie and Foxy, and I have, in, in, at that precise moment, I'd ne I had never seen them laugh like that. They were hysterically laughing, and I was like, oh wow, these guys, these guys can actually laugh. This is good. And um, for that, that moment, I was like, I knew you wouldn't make it because everyone was too happy. Although this is, this is a far too happy scene for them to show it. But I just wish to show little little snippets like that, or like on one of the hill faces, I'll make it up the hill first, or just little things like that. That actually for me was a massive, massive achievement. Like my backwards dive, I hate heights, and yet you know I managed to do it. And it was those little you know small things. And then the one part that I was struggling, they will just focus on that. And then what I didn't like as well was that on that actual part when we were out on the invasion, the run and invasion. There was a part where um, I navigated my team through this real weird hostile um, path. But because of my experience with ultra running, I knew how paths worked. And so there were like loads of bushes and branches in our way, but there was a real good path be behind that. And I knew that. And so I said to my team, we have to go through these bushes and it's going to be horrific because you'll get scratched up. But there's a path. And I was completely right. And I just think, you know, I led my team for about a good hour through that. And there's little things that didn't show. But I know I wasn't the only one. And I know there's a lot of other people that that happened to. And they were only focused, you know, on them either giving the number in or just a tiny snippet of them doing something wrong. And everyone done something wrong, everyone. And I guess it's just the narrative they want to draw. And so I loved, I loved the experience and everything that happened. 
I just didn't like the TV part of it at all. You mentioned um, Jay being the mole. When, like, again, what they show on TV, you see them announce him as the mole, and then there's maybe a minute of people talking about it afterwards and saying, oh, my God, I can't believe this. I imagine in reality that probably lasted a lot longer and there was a lot more kind of shock and conversation yeah. about that. Yeah. So what kind of what went through your mind when he walked out those doors? Um, this is actually quite a funny story because when we got in there, the, the, probably the second day, we had this conversation in our, in our dorms and we were saying, we have a mole here. And that was, the, that was the conversation, that was an ongoing conversation that we were having. Someone's is a mole here, because they did it last year. So we were like, we wonder who's the mole. And we kept picking on people being like, so-and-so has got moly behaviours. You've got moly behaviour. We know who you are. And we'll just go around and like, with Jay, he just never seemed like he was struggling. And we were like, mm, suspicious. And obviously he, he did have a tattoo of the powers on his chest, but <laughs> he'd had that covered up way before. So it was a massive line there and people were like, oh, you guys are so dumb. How did you not notice it? And we, think, and we always said, no, he had a cover up before he came on the show. It was just a massive line. Um, but, we, you know, it did go through our heads that Jay was a mole. Um, just because he wasn't struggling. He seemed like he was having a good time. And he was really, there was a, it was a, and there was a, a number of events that I, I ended up with him or next to him. And he was just a real genuine person as well. He was it's really nice. There was one water thing with the, the drowning bit where the, you were led in the sea and the water's going. And me and Jay were next to each other. And I think where I was this one, one of the smaller ones, I kept getting dragged out by the water. And there wasn't anything I could do because you had to keep afloat. You couldn't have your feet touch the ground. And so Jay was like, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold onto your trousers really tight so you don't float away. And I was like, okay, that, that would be so helpful. And then he'll just check in and be like, you're right. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I was like, I'm just enjoying the views, you know, whilst drowning. Um, so we can crack, we were cracking jokes in those kind of moments. And that was really nice to have. And for me, it was, uh, for me, it was a massive privilege to actually be in the company of someone and to go through those kind of experiences with someone of his caliber. And when he came out, I was just in my head, I was like, oh, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it was him. And we went back in and even though I knew it was him, I was still so surprised because he was there from the get-go. He was there with us from day one. And it was just, again, being in this company, that was, it was a real nice, unique experience to have that. I was listening to um, a podcast yesterday and it had Ollie Ollerton on it. And he was asked the question, of all the um, tasks that, the, that everybody who's on selection does, what are you most jealous of? Um, and are you envious of it or anything like that? And he said the one thing that he would not like to redo, he said it's always the beast things. He says they're, they're grim. He says they're really grim. But what he also said is, although on TV you see a number of staff doing, doing the tasks as demonstrations, there's not a single um, instructor that does them all. And he says he's always jealous because all you guys get to do all of them yeah <laughs> in a blink of an eye i would love to do every single one of those tasks because that's what gets him going but he said yeah bee stings are the ones that he would he would definitely rather sit down and watch yep i agree the tasks were amazing though like, again like abseiling out of a helicopter which they didn't show was amazing even even like the stuff like jumping backwards the, the backwards dive into water it's not stuff that you do every day but 
again, it's all about pushing and pushing forward and you think you can't do it, but when you do it, it's just the, it's the, the, the best way I describe it is that you have a, this eurific feeling, it's eurofia. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right or not, but it's... Gloria. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Same and way. it's just, it's like a mix of adrenaline with like, with I guess dopamine and it's just the best feeling that you can get and you, you just don't get that of everyday life, you know. Um, you don't, you're not, again, you're not pushed to those extents to enable you to feel that feeling and those emotions. You go through emotions of heightened fear to then heightened adrenaline and absolute happiness and within a matter of seconds and you just don't get that. Like you don't go from those emotions within seconds in everyday life. And I, I loved it. For some people that it got too much and I hundred percent understand, but for me personally, for some other people there and I, and I get what Oli means, you know, he, that's what gets him going. I completely get that. And for me now, that is my go-to, you know, if I want to have fun, I go and try and do something real, real extreme, not stupid, but extreme. I'm, my mum, bless her. I, I, I am, I, I'm a, my mum, like my mum and dad both, they are so used to the kind of things I do now. And the only thing she says is, you know, be safe and I, I, I hope to see you later. And that's just, that's just, you know, even when I went to, on SAS, that was her last words, you know, be safe, I hope to see you later. When I went and did my race, um, she was like, I'll be safe, I hope to see you later. And it's, you know, and I can't imagine what goes through her head, but she knows that, you know, that's the person I've become. That's the kind of things I enjoy doing and I, and I love it. And when I, when I think about something that really, really scares me and I get this like sickly feeling almost like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? But also I'll get the adrenaline of, oh, I really want to do it now. And just having... Having those kind of people like Foxy, Ollie and Billy and Jay being in their presence and even though they're shouting at you and even though, you know, they're swearing at you or whatever, actually they are just, they're part of the process of pushing you to your limits. And I respect that so much in someone. And to know that actually these guys have gone through this as well, but on a, on a, on a complete different caliber and a complete different respect. They, you know, Special Forces, six months of grueling training. And for them, they've, they've done that and I respect that so much and they understand the feeling. And after, afterwards, Foxy said something that really saved me. He was like, you know, when, when you guys get to the end, so basically what happened, this, is, this will fit in with what I'm about to say, what happened with me and my exit was that I, because I didn't accept me leaving, I didn't actually leave. And so they have to get people to come and <laughs> take me out. Um, so the umpire was like number 13, give us your number. And he went to take my number off and I basically kind of shoot him off. And I was like, get off me, you're not getting my number. Um, so you see the part where I'm like, oh, the crying soon turned into anger. And I'm not an angry person at all. Like, not even, I'm not even remotely ang an angry person. Obviously I hadn't slept for like 40 hours. I'd had a tin of chickpeas for food and I'd, I'd just completed like five, six hours of interrogation. And so emotionally I was probably so drained in every, possible way you could be and when he was like give me a number I just in my head it didn't click that this is it and I was like no get off me like you're not and then I started hysterically crying and then it turned to anger and I was saying to him you know how can you do this to me you've put me through hell um, and it was the reasoning that they were given didn't make sense they were trying to pin so I was on there because I wanted to relate to my dad more because he's got PTSD quite extreme complex PTSD and so for me I wanted to be able to relate to him in some sort of way and they, the umpire was like, we're taking you off because this is this might bring up memories about your dad. I'm guessing for him, he actually assumed my dad had passed away. And so I was so confused and I started questioning, what do you mean? Like, 
my dad's alive why would this be traumatic for me and nothing made sense and um what had happened actually was a psychologist was supposed to come and get me and there was a massive um the best way to put it, it was a massive argument behind the scenes with, with the umpire and the psychologist being like you shouldn't have done that um this wasn't the way she was supposed to come come out which obviously led to my reaction of not wanting to leave and loads of thoughts went through my head wanted to kick the table wanted to kick the umpire and the reason why Foxy was called in was because I couldn't calm down. And um, I was telling them, I'm not leaving. There's no way you're getting rid of me. I was like, I've got less than one day to go and I'm finished. And for me, I was like, interrogation is pretty much done. I had like four hours to go and I was like, I'm finished here. So I, was just, I wasn't accepting the fact that I, I'm, I'm going to leave. Foxy came in. Foxy came in and was like, Shaq, you need to calm down. I was like, don't tell me what to do. I've got every right to be upset. You know, and then I was, then I'm in begging mode and being like, please let them, you know, let them, let them keep me here. And then Sandeep, the medic came in and Sandeep is an absolutely genuine, kind person. And he really wanted me to stay. And so he was like, like, let me go and speak to them and I'll see if I can make the producers change their mind. And I was like, okay. And then Foxy went and I was like, oh, Foxy is just one of the producers, you know, or he's just, he's just on it with them and he doesn't care. And then he came back in and I was like, Foxy, you're right. He was like, we need to go, come with me for a second. And then I was like, okay. And he said the only reason I left was because he'd gone out because he'd nearly started crying. And I was like, oh, really? He was like, yeah. He was like, you know, I was so close to tears. Um, I, haven't experienced something like this. I haven't experienced something like this before. And he, apparently he went to the producer and said, this is my last show with you guys. I'm never doing this again. I hate, I hate what you've done to her. And, and then that made me cry. And then I was like, oh, don't, because this is going to make me cry again. And then we sat down and you see the snippet of him saying, you know, a similar thing happened to him when he was in the special forces and he got withdrew because of um, whatever issues they thought he medically had, especially mentally. And so on the show, they, they say that they medically withdrew me because of psychological reasons. But the reason it never made sense because my dad had never died. And so that's another thing that really grind, grinds my gears because when I, afterwards they were like, everyone was like, oh, you know, they made the right decision taking you off because you know your mental health is really important but in my head I was like it didn't make sense it there was no reason for me to go at that point apart from them wanting to cut the numbers for the for the finale and so that's again what comes back to my point of why I don't like tv the tv side of it because everything's almost just set up um but also I appreciate the fact that Foxy gave up so much of his time to comfort me and um Sandeep helped me massively as well and even the support Sandeep and Foxy provided me after the show was amazing and yeah it, it, was, it was an experience that would definitely forever stay with me and I, I learned a lot about myself being on there. So kind of almost two questions in one in one of Ant Middleton's books I can't remember which one but in one of them he talks about how something they don't show on the the TV side of things is how much the DS support and mentor the recruits. Is that something you think is, would you agree with that? And then um, with Foxy, again, in his book and, and in TV shows and things he's done, he's very open about his own experiences with PTSD and mental health issues. Do you think he was kind of chosen to support you deliberately because of that or was it just a case of just grab one of them to go and shut her up kind of thing yeah um i think so going going back on your first question about mentoring 
I think when you get to the last stages, i.e. when you reach interrogation, that's when it really shone through, you know. The, they'll still shout at you and stuff, but because they've, they've seen you and they, they, like at that point you, you're, you're on the, you're on the build-up, so you've already been broken down because you've been there for eight, nine days at that point. No longer, sorry, probably about 10 days. And you've got one more day to go. And then that's it. So they've, they've, they've seen your character get absolutely beasted and broken down. And now they're watching you almost build yourself back up again. And so for me, the, the mentoring came in probably, I'd say, in about day seven or eight. And I know a lot of people are not Ant's biggest fan, but you don't see what happens, you know, what goes on behind the scenes. But even like a lot of the recruits don't like Ant because he was he is, he is so harsh. But what do you expect? You know, that's that's what that's what you signed up for. So I didn't expect any less. I was like, if anything, I, I was ready for people to, you know, I mean, because of my size, I was constantly picked on because of my size. You know, you won't last long because you're small. You won't, you can't carry so and so. But for me, I was I, I prepared myself for that, and so that wasn't a problem. Whereas some people took it so personally, and I'm like, they don't. These lot don't have time like to be personally insulting you. They were just chucking out anything they can. Um, and so some people took it really, really like they took it home with them. But for me, it wasn't about that. Like, yeah, all of them showered at me and whatever, like whatever that's expected. But what I didn't expect was the mentoring and and especially like when you have the mirror room interviews, I was expecting them to be ripping my character apart. And one of the one of the most, I guess, one of the things that Anne said to me that will again forever stay with me. He said he started talking about mentoring. Um, intelligence and um, emotional intelligence and he was like you have a really high emotional intelligence i haven't met anyone like you before and for me i was like i was really thrown back and i was like you know you've in your lifetime have met so many people in different circumstances and he was like you know you, you're really your, your emotional intelligence is really high and he was like i hope you know that and i was like oh but i do but that's again because of my life experiences and given that a lot of my situations I found myself in haven't been normal, I guess, in comparison to other people of my age. And so that for me was a, was a real, I guess, compliment coming from him for someone of his caliber and of his experience to notice my emotional intelligence, but also to say that it's, it's like he hasn't seen anyone like, you know, in that sense. And so for me, that was something that will stay with me. And I, it made me believe in myself even more. Um, and believe in my abilities, which really did push me through those last couple of days, actually. It was by one comment or one mentoring comment that something he's seen really pushed me through it. And it was those little things, you know, he might come up behind you and be like, come on, number 13, this is your time to shine. Or you, you're ready for this, number 13. And I'm like, yeah, like, I'm ready, whatever. And so I was really, I was really gutted because I, I felt like I still had so much to give when I was taken off. And I wanted to prove to myself more than anyone that I could finish the course and that, you know, it was something I can put behind me and be really proud of. Um, in terms of his second question, I think that was genuine, as in Fox who genuinely came out. I know that some of them weren't actually there in person and that they weren't actually anywhere close to the, to the, to the camp that we were in because they were dotted in different places. And so... I think Foxy did generally come out because of his own concern because he already knew this. They already knew our backstories of what had happened. And for him, I guess he'd be able to relate to it more than anyone. And also a lot of 
my dad's issues he could connect with as well because he'd been to war, my dad had been to war. And so there was a lot of connectiveness there between the two characters. And so it didn't, it wasn't, it didn't seem, it didn't seem fake, you know, when you can just have someone just there, you know, patting you on the back and be like, you're going to be all right. It wasn't fake. It was, it was so genuine and, and caring. I say that because I had to get taken away from him rather than him leaving me and going. And that's why I think it was his, and he is a genuine person. And you only see that because you see them in their true form and their true characters. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good place to wrap up unless you've got anything to add, Luke. Yeah, I think we could carry on all day, but I know that we've all got a little bit of uh, time limitations of this. But yeah, it's been really enjoyable speaking to you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's been really good. Well, thank you. Thank you guys for having me as well. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I've got one last question just before we wrap up. What is your next uh, challenge? That's a really good question. and something that I've been asking myself. I had been planning to walk 100k across a a number of mountains even Wales or in across starting at Scarfell but again I do actually want to tackle a triathlon as well and so I want to concentrate and focus on my swimming so those two are the next steps for me really also I want to get involved in the battle of BJJ Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu so there's three things that are currently on the horizon for me but I think this 100k walk would be the next thing. Also, because I had a knee injury, I had a, I can't remember what it's called now, I think it was like a a hairline fracture, something like that, I can't remember the full name of it. I'm sure Luke, you'd know better than me, on my left knee, and it is fine now, but um, I wanted to do the 100K of walking rather than running, just in case it comes back, and it'll be a good test to see if it will come back or not. Yeah, um, test. Yeah. <laughs> And um, so, yeah, I want to do that. I want to do the 100K and I want to raise some money for some charities that I've chosen. And then, yeah, get out on the water more. I've bought a wetsuit, so I'm actually ready to go now. And, yeah, get out on the water and start testing the waters, no pun intended, and see see what I can do. Awesome. So where can people find you or your um, training facility, anything like that? On yep. So on social media, I'm on Instagram. Um, it's Shakiba, which is S-H-A-K-I-B-A underscore Mogadam, which is M-O-G-H-A-D-A-M. And then I'm also on Twitter at Shakiba Mogadam. And also our move, um, our training facility is called Move Training Center. And that's based in Southampton. And you can find us on Instagram under Move TC. And you will find all of my interesting activities on there. And I get involved in politics quite a lot. So you'll see a lot of my political um, opinions and the arguments I get myself in with people, and which I love. I think it's brilliant. So yeah, all my crazy activities. And there's a lot of pictures of my Huskies on there as well. So if you love dogs, get on there. Otherwise, yeah, that's where you will find me. Awesome. Luke, same question. Yeah, so on Instagram, it's Zen, oh, I can't remember now, Zen underscore anatomy. You say this every week and I always forget. Zen underscore anatomy. And Facebook is Zen anatomy sports therapy. I don't roll the realms of Twitter. And um, yeah, I'm based in Sherrod's Cross and Hounslow. Cool. And I'm at PaulRosePT, PaulRosePT.com. And we're also now on Instagram 
with at Talking Fit Pod. So check us out on there as well. Uh, thanks very much for joining us and we will see you next time. Goodbye.